Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to China Takes Over the World.、Uh, I am Ying Ma. We are delighted to have with us this morning Professor Huang Jing, who is the director of the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. Professor Huang, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for joining us.、Uh, when President Obama showed up in Asia in late April to reassure friends and allies that America remains firmly committed to their security and to the Asia Pacific region, lots of observers dubbed this、um, visit the "quote contain China" tour. Unquote.、Um, do you think that's how Beijing views it, views it? I think certainly there are some people in in, in China in Beijing says Obama's trip is. You know,、uh, against China is try to、uh, contain China to you know to、uh, to hold China back. But I I don't think so. I think that first, and I think Chinese leadership and、uh, understand、uh, the relationship with United States of America is very important. As a matter of fact, and、uh, American、uh, senior officials, including、uh, President Obama himself, also said again and again that U.S.-China relationship is the most important bilateral relationship. On Earth, and so therefore,、uh, to contain China, in my view, does not really、uh, serve Americans' interests, given this kind of unprecedented interdependence between、uh, the two countries. Right, indeed, and, and the president himself、yeah. denies that there is any containment involved. But、yeah. do you think that maybe, at least, there is a certain component of、um, U.S. policy that has a containment element to it, or or maybe the U.S. is just faking it, denying containment, yeah, to, even though you know it, it's doing、yeah. that. To talk about containment, we have to understand what containment really is. So, what's the foundation for containment? I'm sorry. Are, are you are you asking me? Ideological difference. I mean, either you or me. Like like Soviet Union is for communism must prevail. You know, the red flag must you know all over the world. But of course, United States of freedom, free will, so on and so forth. But now, if you look at China, United States, there's no ideological. Divisions. I mean, I mean,、uh, uh, China is for market economy, peaceful rise, and、uh, United States, of course, for democracy. There are political differences, but there's no like、uh, either you or me kind of ideological difference differences. And the second contentment must have two camps, which are clearly divided and、uh, are very hostile to each other. But right now, it is very difficult for United States to. Kind of organize an international, you know, united front against China because containment is based on ideological difference. But now the U.S. and China's relationship, if there are some problem, it is because conflicting interests. It's not ideological difference. And last but not least, containment is a kind of offensive. Policy is to choke you to death gradually and slowly, but this is not the U.S. policy. I think maybe U.S. policy is hedging, but hedging by nature is defensive, not offensive. So that either from the the, the political foundation, economic foundations, also for containment is not there. But having said that, like you said,、uh, are there any elements? Uh, against China, U.S. policy. Of course, there is. For example, rebalancing itself sometimes、uh, is to rebalance a kind of situation in Asia, which means United States want to maintain its dominance 
in the region, United States, want to make sure it still holds the upper hand in the relationship with China. United States does not, uh, you know, want a situation in, in which China uh, can do whatever it wants, so on and so forth. And of course, there is a trade problem. There is a problem of differences caused by the difference of political. Systems. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about the maybe the China. Yeah, let's maybe talk about the China side of it. Lots of observers in the U.S. have criticized China's claims to a peaceful rise, and have said that that's purely a sham. Now, was the peaceful rise all along a strategy to con- convince the West not to impede China's growth, or do you think that from the very beginning it, the intention was to have a peaceful rise? That's the question. That is, a peaceful rise is a means to achieve a kind of end. Uh, the end is that to you know to enable China to become dominant in the world, or it's an end itself. That's that's a question. In other words, China's rise so far, uh, uh, you know, let's face it, has been peaceful. There's no doubt about that because uh, in the past thirty years, where China's rise, and we don't see any you know conflict. This is a Actually, quite unprecedented. You have a you have a major power rising so rapidly for for almost three decades without a major war caused by this. This is unprecedented in the world history. Uh, but the problem is that will China remain peaceful after it has arrived? That's a question. But talk about peaceful rise. I have to compare China's rise with the rise of our previous powers, is uh, Great Britain, Germany, United States itself, Soviet Union, Japan, and so on and so forth. We can see two fundamental differences, which I think uh, that can, uh, can prove that China's rise so far has been peaceful. First, you know, uh, uh, if we talk about the rise of previous powers, there's a precondition. That is, all those powers already had a military capability uh, that they can fight, they, they can uh, fight massive wars far beyond the border, all over the world. Uh, you know, in, in the kind of uh, scholarly uh, jargon, we call it the global reach of military capability. That's the first. And the second, where those new powers, um, the rising powers, were arising, the challenge the existing international order. For example, the Germany's and the Germans and Japanese uh, challenge Anglo-Saxon order and the Soviet Union challenge uh, the Americans' international order, so on and so forth. But if you look at China, number one, China does not really have this kind of global reach military capability. Of course, Chinese military forces have been, has been developing very fast. But to this end, to this date, uh, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, simply cannot fight a global war. They don't have this. They don't have this. Right. Although a lot of people would Number argue that these... when, when China was right, has been rising, China does not challenge the existing international order. Uh, uh, to the contrary, China tried to join it, the so-called integrated, integrating itself. Well, although a lot of people would argue these yeah. days that China is challenging the. U.S.-led order in the Asia-Pacific, and that even if China had been serious about the peaceful rise at one point, perhaps it has abandoned it now that it's able to flex its muscles more, particularly on issues such yes, as... Yes, China tried to revise the international order. In other words, China tried to uh, kind of, you know, to reshape international order. But while China's rising, China did not 
and has not, and I do not believe China will eventually challenge this international order. If you compare China's rise with, say, uh, Soviet Union, a former Soviet Union, with Germany, with Japan, China did not challenge. Actually, China's rise is achieved through integration into this international system. Although this system was not established by China, was not led by China, was based on market economy led by democracies. Uh, but, of course, after China uh, uh, you know, has arrived in this international system, of course, it's want to revise the system so that it can fit its best, uh, best interest. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that, number one, China's rise was not achieved by military expansion. It is simply impossible into this world. Number two, China, although China is not really happy, China tried to revise the international system. It does not really challenge the system as a previous rise and pass. Having said that, again, let me say that China's rise has been peaceful does not mean China will remain peaceful if it has reached the stardom of global power. That's a question. Right, That's right. And I, I want to actually talk a bit. China said China's become more and more assertive, especially right. in terms of territory disputes. Sure. And, and I actually want to talk a bit more about the first point you just made, which is when you said that China did not become what it is today by virtue of military power. And I know yeah, that yeah. you have written in the past that it's China's reforms that have um, provided the primary condition for China's rise. Um, yes. In light of all the highly contentious territorial disputes that China has gotten itself involved in with mm -hmm. countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, and Japan, mm -hmm. do you think that at least as far as China's neighbors are concerned and as far as the U.S. is concerned, that mm -hmm. they have come to the point of viewing military power as the most important element um, about, you know, about China's rise and the most important thing to fear? Uh, yes, of course. You know, let, let's, first, we have to look at a bit of history to understand why China has caused so much concern, at least, or even anxiety. I hope you will even feel a little bit threatened by this. You know, the People's Republic of China was established in 1949. After that, for long term, for long, long years, for many, many years, China did not really have any capability to control the situation in its neighborhood, either in Taiwan Street or in Korean Peninsula or in South Asia or in uh, Middle uh, uh, and, uh, Central Asia and so on and so forth. China is kind of always try to cope with the situation that created by others. So I was arguing that it is not Japan's policy is a coping policy. China's foreign policy has been long to be a coping policy. Very passively respond to whatever situation created by others in this neighborhood. But this situation has changed all of a sudden after 2008, 2009. And all of a sudden China began to have a, a growing capability to to manipulate or to control the situation in this neighborhood. This is quite new, and the people did not really, uh, you know, was not prepared for this. Even China itself was not very prepared for this. Just like we are living in a big village, the, every house in the village, especially uh, every, uh, the houses around China, it remains the same. But the, the, that house called China getting bigger. And bigger. <laughs> so by nature, people feel threatened. Just like, you know, we all stop growing. We're all like like uh, five, five foot, uh, like, like this size. But there is a guy. And China has grown into a giant. <laughs> yeah, grown into a giant. And people just feel threatened. The, the second, let's face it, China's internal political system, 
is not compatible with the political mainstream of international community for whatever reason. That is the essential source of problem because this political system in which decision-making process remain exclusive, remain closed, is not very transparent. But the mainstream of international system that's established, like, I, like we, we discussed before, established by the right. United States and its allies, uh, they prefer a political system in which the decision-making process is inclusive, encourage the participation. Right, transparent. Uh, transparent. transparent. That, yeah, when people don't know how you make your decision, uh, know how you're going to implement your decision, of course they, they don't feel, uh, uh, you know, uh, comfortable, feel threatened. Right, Last, and in fact, you have also written that yeah. political reform in China is the only option that can help sustain China's rise, and without it, the U.S. will ultimately view China as a threat. Um, we've got about a minute left here. I, I'd love to hear more about how you think this could 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 in fact be realized, given that leaders in China right now don't seem to be in, in any hurry to pursue the kind of political reforms that would make the U.S. comfortable. Yeah, but there are two issues here. First is that in whose terms the political reform will be done. First, let me say that I think political reform, reform in China is inevitable. If you look at China's development in the past three years, China's been doing this. But the problem is that in whose terms? Who is going to define and, you know, this political reform? Of course, the United States wants reform to be done in its term, term, which, of course, does not serve China's interests. It's almost impossible. Number two is how to reform, uh, you know, the, consequence, the, the sequence of the reform, the contents of reform, and the speed of it. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's some fundamental differences between the United States and China. Of course, China wants to call the shot. China wants the reform to be done in its own term and so on and so forth. But having said all this, two things is true. Number one, reform has to be done. Actually, China is already in the evolutionary We've got about 30 seconds. Yes. And the second, no matter how the political reform is, is done, it will not going to be in U.S. term. It, it's going to be in China's term. And I want to make one point, last point, that let's do not kidding ourselves. Uh, like, even though China becomes a kind of democracy, does not mean United States and China will not have any conflicting interests. It will remain to be there. But the good part is that if China becomes a kind of democracy that we see it, then it might be easier, it might be less difficult for United States and China to manage its conflict interests. Does not mean it would not be there. Okay. But the well, problem is that we will China we will have to leave it there. We're out of time, and we have been speaking with Professor Huang Jing, who is the director of the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, this is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. Our guest in this segment is Professor Wu Xinbo, Director of the Center for American Studies and Executive Dean of the Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. Professor Wu, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. At the beginning of this month, a Chinese state-owned oil firm positioned a deep water drilling rig in a part of the South China Sea that is contested by China and Vietnam. The installation was accompanied by a flotilla of 
of about 80 Chinese ships and took place less than a week after President Obama had visited the Asia-Pacific region. Um, Professor, why did China pick this time to position the rig to drill for oil in the South China Sea? Is it partly to send a message to the U.S.? Well, um, I wouldn't uh, say it this way uh, because uh, the way you learn from the official um, uh, channel, uh, this kind of uh, uh, drilling activities have been uh, on the uh, preparation for the last 10 years. So uh, technically, um, this oil rig uh, moved into this water uh, at this time. I, I don't think they just uh, uh, picked up intentionally uh, this moment. Uh, but rather, uh, you know, it just happened uh, this way that they thought it was the uh, right time uh, to do this drilling in this uh, water. And uh, one important is seeing that originally when the oil rig moved into this uh, uh, water, uh, China didn't send a lot of uh, ships to uh, protect it because, you know, they didn't expect that Vietnam would um, took uh, uh, strong measures to uh, uh prevent China from doing that. It was after Vietnam uh, sending the investors, um, disrupting and uh, and uh, ramming the uh, oil rigs. Uh, China reacted by sending more uh, civilian uh, law enforcement uh, ships to the area to protect the uh, oil rigs. Well, Professor, is, I mean, is there some reason why China did not expect a strong reaction from Vietnam, particularly given the heated territorial disputes that have been going on in the South China Sea in recent days, months, and years? Well, if you look at the map, the uh, the location of the uh, drilling um, is about 17 nautical uh, uh, miles from the uh, Paracel Islands, which uh, has been under the Chinese control for uh, several decades. Right, but but Vietnam, is, uh, but Vietnam says, I mean, the, the the drilling area is within Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, and, and they're pretty sore about China having taken over the Paracel Islands from them in a pretty contentious way some years ago as well. Well, I think there's no ground for their claiming that it's within their EEZ because it's, uh, I mean, it's almost 150 miles from their, their coastline, but only 17 miles from the islands uh, that China is controlling. Uh, so, uh, so in this narrow area, if you claim uh, 200 uh, nautical miles, that means the entire uh, water is yours. That, that is impossible, right? So, well, well, so so uh, putting. I, I mean, I mean, if you look at the map, uh, clearly it's much closer to the islands that China controls. Well, well, but obviously Vietnam disputes the Paracel Islands uh, as uh, belonging to China. But putting that aside, let's say you know we put aside who is right and who is wrong about the territorial claims. Um, the positioning of the rig has led the U.S. to condemn it as provocative, um, and Vietnam is currently engaged in a tense standoff with Chinese ships near the rig. What is the benefit for China in making this very provocative move that has one angle? a neighbor, two heightened regional tensions, and three drawn um, U.S. condemnations? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think the U.S. Uh, position carries any uh, uh, credibility in this case. It seems uh, the U.S. Uh, officially says it doesn't take size in South China disputes. Right. But if you look at what the U.S. said and did over the last several years, the U.S. did take size. It took size with 
countries like Vietnam and Philippines who are uh, uh, competing with China on those uh, issues. And secondly, I don't think this move by China is uh, particularly provocative because uh, the reality is that Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, they have built uh, hundreds of oil wells in the disputed waters in South China Sea over the last several decades. And China has done uh, none. Simply, China didn't have the capability to do this kind of deep water drilling. Now, China studied to have this capability and studied to do it in the nearby water. And how can you say China is productive? What do the U.S. say about the hundreds of oil wells that other countries have drilled in the disputed uh, waters for the last several decades? Right. Well, China is already engaged in some very heated disputes with the Philippines over small islands and shoals and in the South China Sea, and with Japan over the Daoyu Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. Um, Indonesia has stayed neutral, but is increasingly becoming concerned about China's claims to the Natuna waters, which Jakarta claims. So, regardless of who who is right or wrong about these territorial claims. I guess a lot of strategists wonder, why is China picking so many fights with its neighbors? Um, I mean, can this possibly be good strategy to create so many enemies or potential enemies all at once? Well, uh, everything has a reason. So you cannot take a too general uh, uh, perception of the issues. Uh, look at every dispute. I think China's policy for a long time has been, you know, sharing the dispute exploring for joint uh, right, development right. of the disputed areas. But then in recent years, I think some of these countries, uh, they are concerned about the prospects of China's uh, growing naval capability and also uh, more active uh, activities on the sea. And they decided that time is not on their side. So they began to push at the envelope and break the, this kind of consensus uh, understanding with China reached in the past. So that's a major background. That is, some of the neighbors decided not to share the dispute, but rather to push the envelope, simply because they think time is not on their side. In the past, China's response would be more rhetorical. But this time, I think China believes that if you decided to break the understanding, and China would like to take action to show that we are also able to safeguard our claim in our own way, Having said that, I don't think there has been any uh, change with the, uh, China's basic policy, that is, not to solve this dispute by the use of force. So if you look, if you say what China has been doing on the sea, largely we are sending the uh, uh, fisher boats, uh, uh, law enforcement uh, uh, ships to these regions, rather than, you know, naval ships. That is in contrary to what Vietnam and the Philippines uh, are doing in those uh, areas. We are speaking with Professor Wu Xinbo of Fudan University. Well, I, I know that China's position is that it has not created any of these crises um, on territorial disputes, whether in the South China Sea or, or the East China Sea, but that it has been merely responding to provocations by its neighbors. But what Certainly, China's neighbors like the Philippines, Vietnam, and Japan, and others w- would disagree with that. But 
a lot of other observers would also say that if you look at the disparity between military power um, on the Chinese side and, and, and on the part of these much smaller countries, well, certainly in the case of the Philippines, um, which has a very puny navy and doesn't really stand a chance against China's naval forces. But, um, you know, in the case of the Philippines, China has dislodged it from Scarborough Shoal and is now trying to evict it from the second Thomas Shoal. These are little shoals in, in, in the South China Sea. Um, is it not a bit far-fetched to say that these other countries are provoking China, um, given how much more powerful China is, um, and and given that China has become more assertive in in asserting its territorial claims? Well, uh, I think these countries, uh, when they confront China, um, they are not uh, confronting China alone. And actually, they have the U.S. Uh, uh, behind them. So the background is really uh, the Obama administration's rebalance to Asia strategy really encouraged Japan, Philippines, and even Vietnam uh, to adopt more uh, assertive uh, posture vis-a-vis China on those uh, disputed islands. So uh, when they uh, 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 take actions in East or South China Sea, uh, actually, their calculation would be the U.S. would come to their assistance. And if you look at what the U.S. officials said and what the U.S. did in those uh, areas, and uh, their expectation might be uh, correct because uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, has already uh, uh, got involved in this dispute, even though, even though officially it says it wouldn't take sides. So I think this issue has become much more complicated because right. of the U.S. involvement politically, diplomatically, and militarily. So in this case, China is not confronting uh, just with its neighbors, but rather with the United States. So that makes it even harder for sure, sure. not to react to actions taken by this country sure. well, what in the a US, more forceful way. What the U.S. says is that, because right now, a lot of the critics in the U.S. say that, in fact, um, the Obama administration has a foreign policy that kind of retreats from the world or doesn't assert U.S. interests nearly as aggressively as it should. But, um, but, but given that from the U- a lot of um, a lot of the folks in the U.S. government say that the U.S. Um, isn't you know clamoring to go out to Asia, but it's U.S. partners who have been very concerned about China's rise that have been clamoring for the U.S. to return to the region or beef up its presence in the region. And and I do want to ask you, you know, maybe this is a bit counterintuitive, but should China not welcome a more robust U.S. presence in Asia? So, for instance, wouldn't it be better for Japan and other countries to feel secure under the U.S. security umbrella rather than to rearm and engage in some major military buildup themselves? Well, we welcome a robust U.S. role in this region diplomatically and economically, and also welcome the U.S. Uh, um, to work with us to uh, help stabilize regional situation, like in the Korean Peninsula. But if the U.S. rebalance policy to this region is aimed to uh, contain or check a rising China, certainly that would hurt China's national interests. So how can we embrace such kind of U.S. policy, right? And also, as as you said, you know, people in the U.S. are concerned about the rise of China. Well, that doesn't justify you getting involved in the, you know, decade-long uh, dispute between China and its neighbors over those small islands. That's a different issue, right? 
What, what, what the U.S. says is that it doesn't take a position on territorial claims, but that it, it does not um, uh, it does not support the coercive, coercive measures of of changing the, the status quo. And that, you know, what it does have very keen interest in, in freedom of navigation in, in, in the South China Sea and in the Pacific region in general. Um, I, 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 we, we've got about a minute left. Professor, I am curious. I understand you have very serious concerns about the U.S. rebalance to the region. But I wonder if you feel that there are ways um, f- to um, to get to an off ramp for both China and its neighbors, as well as for the U.S. to dial back the tensions um, but in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea, do you see possibilities of doing that? Well, um, I think the challenge is that uh, the U.S. Uh, has shifted its uh, attitude on these disputes uh, greatly by getting directly involved in these disputes, turning these disputes uh, uh, into some kind of a China-U.S. rivalry in East and South China Sea. At the same time, emboldened by the U.S. policy, Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, and they are taking a, a, a more assertive uh, attitude on these issues. And for China, uh, confronted with situation, I think it has no choice but to show that it's capable to resist this kind of pressure, joint pressure from the U.S. and its allies. Okay. Having said that, I don't think any country, including the U.S., would like to see a war in East and South China Sea. Okay. So okay. what we should do is that for the U.S., it should come down on its allies that, you know, uh, the U.S. doesn't want to uh, say the disputes taken too far. And for China, I think even though uh, it is now reacting to actions We've got about 10 seconds. other countries, yeah, it should uh, uh, work hard to find a diplomatic way to stabilize the situation. So, oh, okay, uh, we, we have been war. speaking with Professor Wu Xinbo, Director of the Center for American Studies and Executive Dean of the Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. Professor, I'm sorry we are out of time, but thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. This is China Bye-bye. Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.